Amen. You may be seated. And welcome. It's great to see you. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and find your way to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. So thankful for our worship team leading us today. And Chris is always doing a great job just putting all this together. Really thankful for him. Well, last week, Pam and I had the opportunity to go up to Panguitch Lake, Utah. It's, a, it's in southern Utah. We went up there and visited Pam's uh, brother and sister-in-law, who about a year ago bought a cabin up there, a place to get out of the heat. It's about 8,200 feet is the elevation. It's about 30 minutes away from Bryce Canyon. It is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful setting. It's a, the temperature was like 78 in the day, and 52 at night, and it was incredible. And Friday night, we were getting ready to go to bed, and all of a sudden, there's this shrill, screaming siren that's going on. And so this house, you got to understand, it's, it sits on the side of this mountain overlooking the lake with mountains behind it, and um, it's three stories, and we're on the bottom story. We've got windows looking out, and, and, and there's a bathroom and, and two bedrooms, and then there's a utility closet, which you don't go into utility closets, but that shrilling scream is coming from there, and I had to go in there. And so I, I walk in there, and I, I see that it looks like a smoke alarm, and it's sitting on the floor next to the hot water feeder, uh, the hot water heater, and it's looking at me, just screaming at me. And it's like, you know, turn this thing off. But then all of a sudden I realized why it was. It was a water detection device. And water was bubbling up out of the drain in the utility closet, which generally is not a good thing. Specifically this time, it definitely wasn't a good thing. Well, we turned off all the toilet, uh, all the showers. There's no toilets. And uh, long story short, after much investigation, it was determined that the septic tank hadn't been cleaned out in about 10 years, and there was a problem with the leach field, and so on and so forth. So good news is we caught it, and there was no affluent water in the house. The bad news was we couldn't shower, couldn't flush the toilets, couldn't run the water. But we got creative. We did what campers do. We went to the great outdoors. Welcome to camping in 2019, but it was amazing as I would go out at night, as we all had to, and I did something I wouldn't have done otherwise. I looked up in the sky, and at 8,200 feet with no light pollution, the heavens were incredible. I mean, the stars were, I mean, it's like you forget how many stars are out there because in Phoenix, even though they have light pollution restrictions, it's, you still miss so much. And it was funny that the thought hit me that if it hadn't been for, the, for this trial, the backed up sewer system, I wouldn't have really comprehended the greatness of God in that way. That happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, here I am thankful, thanking God for no plumbing. That's a first. But so often we can go through life and everything seems like it's going fine. And then the bottom drops out, literally. And, and, and next thing you know, you're lamenting, you're crying out to God, you're, you're seeking Him. And 
when we do, we might not realize maybe this was God's way of putting our eyes back on him. Taking our independence and causing us to be, to be dependent again. Because it's pretty easy to get caught up in our own worlds. It was a reminder to praise him, to, to look to him. And he's unbelievable. And when we come to Psalm 8, we find just that. The Psalter has placed Psalm 8 strategically between Psalms 3 and Psalm 7, 3, 3 through 7 and 9 through 13. Five lament psalms on either side of Psalm 8. 64, basically, verses on each side that are laments. Why would he do that? To remind us that when things are really going tough, to look up. That we can still praise God. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to praise him. Here's the point. Even in the midst of our sufferings, praise God. We should praise God. He wants us to praise Him. But the question then becomes, what should we praise Him for? Psalm 8 tells us, and let me just say it in a, sense, in a, in a sentence, praise God, I'll put it up on the screen, praise God for His majesty and glory. Praise Him for His, his creation, for His care for us, for His eternal plan. So let's look at Psalm 8. Let me read this and follow along. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made, a little, you, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What amazing psalm. In the midst of anguish and despair, God's people can cry out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So this is a psalm that just uh, doesn't just remind us to praise God, but it tells us why. First of all, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We praise God, first of all, for his majesty and his glory. For his majesty and his glory. Now from start to finish, this is a psalm of praise. All it does is speak to God's glory it celebrates the majesty of God. Now, it starts out with a, with a, with a subscription. It says, um, it, it says, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth. Now, theologians don't necessarily know what a Giddeth is. They believe it is a tune. So it is believed that David wrote this psalm to a tune, and it was for the choir master. It was for the nation to sing. And you can just imagine there were times that they would sing this. 
I'm thinking that during the time of Nehemiah chapter 8, when the nation came back and they set up the choirs after they brought out the word and, and they had these choirs set up, that this was one of the songs that they sang. And you notice, it is, dre- it is written directly to God. It is a psalm of praise that speaks of God and speaks to God about his majesty. Now, I'm just thinking about what it must have been like when David was writing this. Now, now David was a shepherd. And it was probably written when he was younger, when he was out in the shepherd fields. And, and maybe they had just laid down and, and he's, he's laying in the, in the sheep gate. You know, you've got the, the, the sheep fold, and the sheep are probably all settling down, and he's now in the gate area to keep any predators from coming in and to keep any of the sheep from getting out. And you could just imagine him looking up in the sky and saying, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Seeing the just thousands of stars, and he didn't even have a, a glimpse of what this solar system is even about. But when he says, Lord, our Lord, notice he uses the word Lord in all capital letters. That's, that's the covenant name of God. That would also be known as Yahweh. He is the self-existent one. And when he says, our Lord, that, that word is Adonai. He's the sovereign one. He's self-existent. He's our covenant God. He's sovereign. He's master. Literally, David would have been saying, oh, Yahweh, our Lord. It's personal to him. It's a statement of faith, acknowledging that God is the one true living God. See, we come to faith, we come to Jesus by faith, but I think sometimes we don't always live by faith. David is crying out in faith, God, our God. David praises God for how majestic his name is. Now, he uses both the the term majestic and he uses the term glory. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. So I want to help you kind of understand the difference between these two words. The word glory is the greatness of his his essential nature. it's, It's the greatness of his nature. That is glory. Majesty is the display of that glory. Glory is the greatness of his nature. Majesty is the open display of his nature. It's it's really a royal designation. In fact, you know Queen Elizabeth? She's quite the proper lady. What do they call her? You see a picture. They call her Her Majesty. I don't know what she's reading there right now. Maybe she's, I don't know, reading some sort of declaration. But there's majesty in that picture. It's displayed glory. Now, that doesn't even come close to the displayed glory of God. But his name is majestic in all the earth. That word name, it speaks of his character and his, and his, and his reputation. It's all of his attributes and it's all of his, it's, it's, it's all of his, his nature. To know God, to know his name uh, and what it was, represents should cause us to worship. The more we know God the more we should worship. I've said it many times. We don't come, listen to worship, hoping that it will set the table for the message. 
The message should make us worshipers. It should give us a greater view of who God is. That's what I've been praying all week. God, give me a greater view of you. And then I started, as, as God just started reveal himself in such beautiful ways to me this week, I'm thinking, God, open the eyes of our church to how great you are. The display of his essential nature is throughout all the earth. Whenever you look around the earth, you see his majesty. Many of you have been traveling Colorado, Hawaii. We were in Utah. Others were, I don't know, maybe in Tucson. And, and uh, some of us saw more glory than the others. But the fact is, the fact is, it is when we see God's creation, we see his majesty. Listen to what Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 1. I'll put it on the screen. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his, in, in, so his, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What he's saying is that they're without excuse, those that don't know God, because God has revealed himself through his creation. And I'm telling you, all you got to do is drive from here to southern Utah and drive around southern Utah, and you think, God's unbelievable. This tapestry that he's built. We praise him for his, for his majesty and his glory. God has set his glory above the heavens we see that in the second part of this verse. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice that he ascribes God as setting his glory above the heavens. He understood the awesomeness of God's glory. That was the problem that Solomon had when Solomon built his temple. When he was dedicating the temple in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, he says, but God... Solomon says, but God will indeed dwell on the earth, question mark. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built. Solomon understood the, the magnificence and the glory of, of God. I mean, if heavens can't, heaven can't contain you, how can this house, this beautiful temple that we had built? Listen to what James Boyce wrote. He says, if God has set his glory above the heavens... It is certain that nothing under the heavens can praise him adequately. I wonder how well we praise God. Not saying on occasion, praise God, because it sounds good. But praise him from our heart, from the depths of our hearts. Psalm 145, 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in his greatness is unsearchable. We can't know the magnitude of his greatness. God is awesome. And that's what I come away with this thinking. So David takes us from the glories of heaven back to earth. Look at verse 2. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So there's this contrast between the weak and the strong. The weakness of babies is strengthened by their praise of God. The more... The weaker we are, it is when we praise God that we actually are strengthened and we quiet the voices of God's enemies. 
When you sing praise to God, no matter how weak or frail, you are strengthened in your worship. This was a, this was a verse right here that, that uh, Jesus quoted on Palm Sunday. You might remember it when we were back talking about the, uh, the miracles on the day that uh, uh, Jesus had his triumphal entry. When all the religious leaders were indignant that the children were crying out, Hosanna to to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And he says, aren't you listening to them? Listen what what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Which when he was saying that, he was saying, you guys are the teachers of the law, and you don't even know the scriptures. In fact, what he was saying is, you don't even know one of the great psalms of our nation, Psalm 8. Haven't you ever read out of the mouth of of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Now, that's a messianic he was basically saying that Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm. Now, we know that mess, uh, Psalm 8 is a creation psalm. It's a praise psalm. But it's also messianic, meaning that it foretold of a Messiah to come. And we'll see more of that in a minute. But if they were upset, if the religious leaders were upset at Jesus saying, Have you never read? They would have gone off the rails at this point. Because he was declaring that he was God. And that those who were against him were God's enemies. Why should we praise God? We should pray him for his majesty and his glory. But secondly, we should praise him for his creation. We should praise him for his awesome creation. Look at verse 3. When I notice the personal pronoun, when when, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. David here is declaring that the heavens belong to God. Why? Because God created them. I mean, Genesis 1-1 tells us in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Psalm 33, 6, 8 and 9 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now we think the earth is pretty big. Yet do you realize it's a relatively small planet in a relatively small solar system on the outer edge of one of billions of solar systems in the universe. So what is that to God? It's the work of his fingers. That's pretty amazing. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, it it emphasizes the power of God, and in effect, it's minimizing the the magnitude of, of, of of the universe in the presence of an awesome creator. When you comprehend, uh, when you comprehend creation, you have to conclude creator. In fact, I would say this. It takes infinitely more faith to believe that we are here because some sort of cosmic accident 
than it does to believe in a, design, in a divine designer. Let me, let me just look at micro-design real quick. Let's look at this picture of DNA. Deoxyribonucleic acid. Anybody remember that from high school? Some of you may still be interested in it. Do you realize that DNA are duplicate copies of long tapes of coded information all coiled up in each one of the hundred trillion cells that you have in your body? There's 46 segments in almost all of your cells. 23 from your father, 23 from your mother. Each contains unique information that determines what you look like, your personality, how you live the rest of your life. Of the 7 billion people in this world, no DNA is the same. Not even identical twins. It's similar, but not the same. In fact, if all the DNA in your body were placed end-to-end, it would stretch out from here to the moon and back more than 500,000 times. Evolutionists can't explain this away. You study the human body. Study the reproductive system. You can't help but say, I realize that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It screams, creator. It causes you to praise God for his creation. But let's now zoom out and look look at just the earth. I did a little research this week. You get, you get to benefit by it. Do you realize that our earth, you would know this, rotates around the sun every 365.25 days. That's 93 million miles, which means our earth is traveling at about 67,000 miles per hour, fast enough to go around the earth in seven minutes if you were to run around the earth that fast. The earth is tilted at an angle of 23.5%. It rotates once every 24 hours. And at the equator, the earth spins about 1,000 miles an hour. And yet we don't fly off this planet. Our distance from the sun is 92 plus million miles. If we got much closer, we'd have some pretty bad sunburns. If we got much farther away we would freeze. This screams creator, designer. David is saying here, praise God for his creation. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, we can't help but to praise God. But not only praise God for his majesty and his glory and for his creation, but praise God for his care. Now, David is overwhelmed by, by, by God's majesty and glory. He's, he's, he's overwhelmed by the vastness of his creation, and he looks at the heavens, and he realizes how small he is, and he asks this rhetorical question, what is man that you're even mindful of him? What is man that you even care for him? And, and you praise God for his compassionate care. Now, this psalm, it starts starts out all about God. And really the whole psalm is about God. But if it started in verse 4, it might be a little bit different. It's so important for us to have a God view first and foremost. 
See, David might have been tempted to say, how about man? Isn't he awesome? Doesn't he do awesome things? It would have been like those building the uh, Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. I mean, we're going to reach up to the heavens. But yet, when you get a glimpse of the glory of God, you can't help but be humbled. I mean, just read Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah got a, just a, a glimpse of the, of the hem of, of God's robe. And he was undone. And so David says, what is man? See, when you see God for who he is, and you have any type of self-promotion or self-exaltation, you realize how foolish you are. So often we live our lives consumed by self-promotion. That could be done through social media or just things that we say. We, we, we're, we're consumed with self-exaltation, with self-importance, self-reliance, self-righteousness. And so often God just becomes an add-on to our lives. But not David. David looks up, and he sees the greatness of the glory of God. He ponders the vastness of God's creation. He asks, what is man? We're like specks in God's universe. I think it would be like walking down a beach. The hundreds of thousands of beaches in this world, pick a beach, any beach. And at some point, you reach down and you pick up handful of sand and you pick up a grain of sand why would you set your attention on that piece of sand well first of all it would have nothing to do with the sand it has everything to do with you who's picked it up it would all be grace the sand didn't deserve our attention how much more God's care for us Praise God for his compassionate care. Now, there's two aspects of his care. First of all, his care for mankind. His care for mankind. And we see that here. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. David is astonished that the almighty, eternal creator God personally cares for him. For us, he knew it was grace. In fact, this is a question of astonishment. We should be astonished that the creator of the universe cares for us. That he has set his eye on us. And the fact is, David understands he can ask this question Because God is a personal God. He's not some distant deity. And that that word mindful, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you remember him, that you think about him, that you you call to mind? He says, or the son of man. That's a term that describes the weakness of man. It's a term that Jesus used to describe himself when he put on human flesh and came into this world to die a sacrificial death on the cross and be raised from the dead. And David asks, how is it that you would care for someone weak like me? That word care, it means to attend to or to look after, to visit. It's a word of love. It's a word of care. It's a word of attention. 
do we sometimes forget that God cares? We get consumed with so many different things that we forget. He has cast his eye upon us. I was thinking about that word care, and I, many of you know Chuck Miller. He's been in and out of the hospital. He's back in the hospital, and we've got a couple men in our church that have been showing a lot of care for him. I mean, Eric Tooker has been at the hospital almost every day, and, and uh, um, Phil Doyle. I mean, those, they care. They care about him. We all do, but they're showing that. And then in verse 5, he says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. It's a reminder that God had created us in his image. It, it points us back to Genesis chapter 1. We were made a little lower than God. Now, that's not little gods, little G gods, but lower than God in his image, but falling short because of our sin. It is a reminder that in, inter- in eternity we will rule and reign in Christ. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That word heavenly beings, you might see it as a, as a textual note where it could either be, um, uh, could mean uh, God or it could be angels. But we know, well, we'll, we'll follow up on that in a minute. This is all just a reminder that in eternity we will rule and reign with Christ. See, part of his care was crowning us with glory and honor. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That word crown, it means to adorn. It's a sign of distinction. It's a, it's a picture of high rank. He gave us a picture of, he gave us, excuse me, a position of authority in creation. And it looks back to our original commission that we saw in Genesis chapter 1. Let me put that up on the screen. Because in Genesis chapter 1, if you remember, in verse 26, we get a little insight into God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's a picture of the Trinity right there. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And you read in verse 5 of Psalm chapter 8, it says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with honor, with glory and honor because he has given us stewardship over his creation. He has given us a commission. And we'll see... Later on, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives us a great commission. Even in our fallen sinful state, we have a stewardship to rule and reign over God's creatures on God's behalf. I think there's a good question that we need to ask ourselves sometimes. Why did God place me here on earth? And beyond that, why would God save me? I think that's a really important question 
to consider, to think about, and even discuss with your family. Eric Tucker, one of our leaders who's down in Children's right now, mentioned that he had read something in Spurgeon. I don't know if any of you use Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, but it's a great devotional. Listen to what Spurgeon wrote June 10th, which is a morning. He says, if God had willed it, each of us might have entered heaven at the moment of conversion. It was not absolutely necessary for our preparation for immorality, immortality that we should tarry here. It is possible for a man to be taken to heaven and to be found meet to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light, though he is but just believed in Jesus. Meaning, God could call us home right now. Okay, we're saved, we're good. We're in heaven. Worshiping, eating at the Lord's Supper, eating, eating at the, at the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. It is true that our satisfaction is a long, our sanctification is a long and continued process, and we shall not be perfected till we lay aside our bodies and enter within the veil. But nevertheless, had the Lord so willed it, he might have changed us from imperfection to perfection and have taken us to heaven at once. Why then are we here? Great question. Would God keep his children out of paradise a single moment longer than was necessary? Why is the army of the living God still on the battlefield when one, one charge might give them the victory? Why are his children still wandering hither and thither? See, it's tough to speak old English. Through a maze when a solitary word from his lips would bring them into the center of their hopes in heaven. The answer is, they are here that they might live unto the Lord and may bring others to know the Lord and to know his love. We remain on earth as sowers to scatter good seed, as plowmen to break up the fallow ground, as heralds publishing salvation. We are here as the salt of the earth to be a blessing to the world. We are here to glorify Christ in our daily life. We are here as workers for him and as workers together with him. Let us see that our life answers its end. Let us live earnestly, useful, holy lives to praise the glory of his grace. Meanwhile, we long to be with them. God has us here for a purpose. And when we look up into the heavens, and when we look at what, where the Lord has left us, we worship him for his care for mankind, the fact that he is God is here, but also for his care for creation. Look at verse 6. He says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the pass of the sea. God has appointed us to have dominion over the earth, not to do as we please, but to be, to, but to be good stewards, to, to represent the one who has given us dominion. God has, when he says God has put all things under our feet, it means we have ownership and control, but yet in subordination to God. Now, when he says all sheep and oxen, he's talking about domesticated animals. When he's talking about the beasts of the field, he's talking about the wild animals. And then everything else that is in the sea. Listen, we praise God because of his majesty and glory. We praise God because of his creation. We praise God for his compassionate care for us. 
But finally, we praise God because of his eternal plan. Because of his eternal plan. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews is about the last tenth of the Bible. If you've gone to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or Revelation, you've gone too far. If you're still in the T's, 1st, 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, or vice versa. Titus, you've not gone far enough. What's amazing about the writer of Hebrews is he uses over and over again Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we see in verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. And then verse 5. For it was not angels that God subjected to the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then he says this, It has been testified somewhere. So there was somewhere that it was testified. But what's he doing? He's getting ready to quote Psalm 8. It's almost kind of curious that he uses that terminology. This is one of the most familiar psalms in Judaism. And in this we see, he quotes, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, who is he talking about? When we go back to Psalm chapter 8, he's talking about man. In fact, it's speaking of Adam, or the first Adam, and everybody else that he was represented. But something happened in Genesis chapter 3. What? We had the fall of man. And because of that, our stewardship has been corrupted. goes on in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now he's speaking about Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is described here. See, Psalm 8 was never just about God's creation of man. But it also spoke of Jesus. See, when you read backwards, and you start in Hebrews and go back to to Psalm chapter 8, you see that this is about Jesus. This is a prophecy of the Messiah to come. In Psalm 8, there's there's a reference here to Christ, even though Psalm 8 points to Adam. Adam lost his dominion. And so now we know that Jesus, that everything is being put into subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. 
at present, he says, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Why? Because Jesus hasn't returned yet, but he's coming again when everything will be put in his control. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. (laughs) Jesus took off his royal robes and condescended, came to heaven, became a little lower than angels. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, he didn't have to do that. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. His work on the cross gave him the glory and the honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It's a substitutionary sacrificial death in our place for all those who accept him by faith. For it was fitting, it was right that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. How do we bring many children to glory? It's by telling them about Jesus Christ, urging them to embrace Jesus by faith. Now when we get to Psalm chapter 8, verse 9, it has whole new meaning. See, Psalm 8, verse 9, is a refrain of verse 1, and we sing it with fresh understanding. See, we started by praising God by affirming His majesty as Creator. But at the end, we stand in awe at the unexpected grace of his elevated, uh, of, 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 his, um, of his honor and glory and, and care. I'm just going to ask you right now if, if you would stand. I want to just, as, as, a, as, a, as a church, I want us to be able to declare, and as our worship team comes forward, I want to declare the words Psalm 8 verse 9 you may be in a trial you may be suffering your marriage may be in trouble you may be struggling financially you may be sick but this is a reminder to look to God to praise God he loves you he cares for you And we can sing verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we thank you for a reminder that you're an awesome God. Father, forgive us for the times that we get caught up with everything other than you. Father, we just ask that you would give us a greater love, appreciation, desire, dependence, need, concern, care for you. Father, help us decrease so you'll increase. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.